Okay, uh, this morning I'm going to continue on to um, look at the doctrines of grace, and we are on the third one, and that would be limited atonement and particular redemption. That particular one would be uh, probably done more than just in one message, and I, I, I planned on doing these all in one message, but limited atonement, because there's so many other passages that you are wondering about, I'm going to, I'm going to look at those passages next week. Um, and of course, we already looked at the first two, and today we are looking at the third one, and then we're going to look at irresistible grace, and then finally the perseverance of the saints, and then I am looking forward to doing what I usually do, go through a book. And I will be, I'm heading towards 1 Peter, and, uh, and that's what I am going to do. So let's pray, and we'll look at this this morning. Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us more understanding, Lord, uh, about the reasons why you died, for whom you died. And I pray, Lord, that we would see the evidence right in Scripture, that you would convince us, Lord, that this great plan of salvation started long before we were ever born. It started in eternity, in the council rooms of the Trinity. And Lord, we know that there you planned out everything, and that all those that you chosen there in Christ will come to know you in time as they hear the gospel, repent of their sins, and believe by faith in the only sacrifice they have to forgive their sins, wash it away, and be made right with God. So I pray, Lord, all of us would know this morning where we stand with you, that we would know for sure that if we were to die today, that we would know we would go into your presence. And I pray that answer would be clear to us, that we would be convinced of that. And I pray that you would help us as we look at these truths, the core of the gospel, to uh, be just strengthen them, in them, grow in them, and become uh, convicted of them. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we move uh, through these doctrines, I have already mentioned that um, these are important to understand for our Christian faith. They do uh, really inform our view of God. Uh, our view of who we are, our view of how someone actually gets right with God. Uh, And then, of course, today we're going to look at how it uh, informs our view of the nature of the atoning work of Christ. Atonement, remember, is is the covering that the blood of Christ uh, provides for all those who come to believe in him as Lord and Savior, and so today that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this great doctrine of what it's called limited atonement. Another way of saying it is particular redemption, and then also another way would be even definite redemption. All those have been used to describe this doctrine. And from my last message on unconditional election, I must say election itself saved no one It only marked out particular sinners for salvation, those chosen by the Father and given to the Son had to be redeemed if they were to be saved. 
That means no one can be saved apart from believing the gospel. The common view is, though, in uh, life in general, is that people, Jesus died for everyone. Limited atonement, particular atonement, definite atonement does not mean that Christ's death was limited in value. The gospel is to be offered to all, and it is often said the atonement was sufficient for all and efficient only for those who believe or only for the elect. Now, according to R.C. Sproul, great theologian, um, especially on doctrines like this, he said that the most important question was, what was the original purpose of, of Christ's death? What was the original purpose? Was that purpose, first of all, to, was that purpose to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing, which secured salvation for no one, people who are of another persuasion theologically would say the atonement was not designed by God to purchase a specific people for himself, but to make salvation possible for any person who will, of his will, of his own will, free will, repent and believe. And of course, or, the second would be, or was it, to ensure the salvation of his people, which was definite in design and accomplishment. Now, this doctrine states that the death of Christ actually put away the sins of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith through regeneration or through being born again and kept in faith until glory. That's what it says. Now, from this definiteness and effectiveness follows its, its limitlessness, that Christ did not die in this efficacious sense for everyone. In other words, and all would agree with this, not everyone is saved. Not everyone gets saved. Now, the issue of limited atonement the atonement, the atonement is limited in its design. That is, the original design of the atonement was to provide a definite sacrifice for the elect, a definite shedding of blood that washes away sin and covers sins forever for God's chosen, that their sins would be covered and washed away so that God's children could be made right with God forever. All right, so in this particular truth, there is no losing your salvation, because once you are saved, you are saved forever, because of not what you've done, but everything that God has done. So we need to answer some basic questions concerning the definiteness of Christ's atonement. And of course, those questions would be My uh, thing's not working right. I don't know why. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll follow along uh, to 
just look at, there's five basic reasons to answer the first question. Let me see if it works now. All right, yes, here we go. We're back up. Technology, I don't like it. I don't know about you. I never feel comfortable with technology. There's always something that goes wrong, and nobody knows how to fix it except one guy in the room, you know? And he's got all his degrees and stuff like that, right, Greg? <laughs> and then Lyndon over there, too. So there's two guys in the room that know how to fix it. So uh, it's still not... There he goes right there. All right, so, so what's, there's five reasons uh, for the reason for Christ's death. And the first one is to justify the many. Justify the many. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to several verses. This one I'm going to have on the screen for you, and it's this, that the Lord actually, a second reason would be that he died to redeem and to cleanse sinners by paying the price for their sin, thereby purchasing a people for himself. The first passage of Scripture in Isaiah 53, see, the bearing of iniquities means that all whose iniquities Christ bore must be justified. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see See it and be satisfied by the knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will, notice what it says, justify the many. How does he justify the many? The last part of the verse, by he will bear their iniquities. That's how he justifies them. So the the fact of Christ's death, resurrection, and intercession means that no one for whom Christ died and was raised to intercede for or pray on their behalf may be condemned. That's a given in Scripture that it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, and notice the last part, who also intercedes for us. Now, who is the us? The us is his children. The us is, of course, the elect also. So Jesus' priestly work of prayer on the night before his death was directly connected to his priestly work of sacrifice. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 2. We can't read all of it verse 6, and then verse 8 and 9. Now, in saying this, that this is where the Lord prayed, and of course, this prayer was for to the Father, but it was particular, this prayer. Notice what it says in John chapter 17, verse 2. It says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Right, and then no down, go down to verse six. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And verse number eight, go down to verse eight. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you. They believed that you sent me. And then verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those 
you have given me, for they are yours. Now, you notice the stress that the Lord puts on this particular prayer, that he doesn't pray for everyone, all right? He prays for, specifically, for those who are his. And so, the Old Testament high priests of Israel always offered sacrifices for specific sinners and a specific multitude. So on his shoulders, on the high priest's shoulders, and on his chest, the high priest bore the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on precious stones. Aaron, where it says, shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. In other words, it was specifically for these people that the high priest offered his atoning sacrifice, a multitude of specific people. In the same way, Jesus presented his life a sacrifice for the same people for whom he had been praying in the Gospel of John, recorded there in chapter 17, that the death of Jesus Christ actually accomplished the salvation of all those whom the Father had given to him. See, that is what the point is. Now, that second point is that the reason why the Lord died is to redeem and cleanse sinners by paying the price for their sin, thereby purchasing a place a people for himself. Now, so the fact that Christ bought us and purified us means that those for whom Christ died are his own possession and cleansed for his presence. Now, if you notice the passage up, up there in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, who gave himself for us, who's the us, the elect, to redeem us, the elect, from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, and those people then would be zealous for good works. So that means that Jesus' death paid the debt once and for all for the sin of his sheep. There's no further payment necessary. In other words, God will not demand a double payment for sin. In other words, once for by his son and once by the sinner. That's not going to happen. Jesus' death was completely effective in paying off the debt for all the sins of his children forever. Even the worst sin, and of course, the, what is the worst sin? The worst sin is really the sin of unbelief. If somebody remains in unbelief, they are still under God's wrath and condemnation. But if you turn to Jesus in repentance, of course, there is a change that happens to the person because they believe in Christ. If you never believe in him, be sure of this, this fact, that he did not die for your sins of unbelief. He did not die for the unbelief of all people. He died only for the sins of unbelief committed by the people who would eventually come to believe in him. That's what he came to do to 
redeem and then to cleanse them completely forever. And then, of course, there is the next thing that he did, and that's the third reason, and it would be it would be this, that he came to propitiate the Father. To propitiate the Father. Let me see if this is going to work. This doesn't want to work the way I want it to today, but anyway, to propitiate the Father. Now, what does propitiate is a big word. Propitiation simply means the turning away or the appeasement of God's wrath. Therefore, by definition... The Father has no more wrath against those whose sins have been propitiated. Jesus' death removed the wrath of God from sinners. Now, a next reason would be that God died, and I'll come back to the passage that goes with that, is to make reconciliation between an offended God and an offending sinner. And, of course, the first passage of Scripture found in 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse number 10, where it says, In this is love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for sin. So, in other words, Jesus absorbed in himself, the full wrath of God for a great multitude of sinners. Sin received the full fury of of a holy God at the cross of Christ, and that's what Christ bore that particular day on the cross. A good example would be in uh, Luke chapter 18. Turn there, Luke chapter 18, verse 13 and 14. This is the the story of the the story of the tax collector or the publican used in other passages of scripture who cried out to God for mercy on him and he was asking for God to actually be propitious towards him he saw himself a sinner under God's wrath notice notice what it says in verse 13 of Luke chapter 18 it says but the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right, and mercy and propitiation are very closely linked because mercy is asking God to have compassion on you in your helpless state as a sinner. You can't do anything to rid yourself of, the, of your sin or the condemnation which sin brings. And then verse 14, it says, this is what Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house, notice, justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, God heard his cry of mercy, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He removed his wrath from that person who calls upon him for salvation, and he declares that person righteous and justified before God, and that would be forever in Christ Jesus. And so that becomes very important. So what needs to be removed is God's enmity 
against sinners. Now, you didn't know that before you became a believer, you were an enemy of God, right? And if you're not a believer, you are an enemy of God, all right? And of course, so here is the question, or here's the statement, what needs to be removed is God's enmity against sinners. And of course, the passage of Scripture would be found in the Word of God in Romans chapter 5, verse number 10, where it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So that next reason is not only that he, uh, Jesus died to propitiate the Father so the Father's wrath can be turned away f- from you forever, but also now to make reconciliation between an offended God and an offending sinner. And be sure of this, you don't need to reconcile friends. You need to reconcile enemies, right? We were enemies of God, and so that reconciliation had to come through Jesus Christ. And of course, there is one last thing, and that is the the last reason, well, there's more reasons, but these are the ones that I'm mentioning this morning, is that of to, raise, to be raised to new life. Uh, in other words, if Christ died for someone, then with no other conditions, that person died with him and then also will be raised with him. See, that's what the Scripture tells us. In this passage of Scripture, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they whom who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again, and notice, on their behalf. So he is dying on behalf of a particular, specific group of people. He's not dying for every single human being that ever lived. All these five reasons mean that his death had a purpose, which, is, was, which was intended for some and not for others. His death had an effective intent that was limited to certain persons. That's what, mean, it, what it means by limited atonement or particular or definite atonement. It was limited to a specific group, a certain group of persons. And of course, from Ephesians, those persons were elected in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, there's another question that we need to ask. And of course, it would be, for whom then did Christ die? And I've been saying the purpose was to redeem a certain people, not others. So that second question is, for whom did Christ die? Now, Christ gave his life in particular for certain people. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6 and verse 35. John chapter 6 and verse 35. And I'll read down to verse number 40. It says, Jesus said to them, John 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, that passage of Scripture, of course, tells us something. It tells us, of course, of course that the Lord definitely died for certain people, and of course, that passage of Scripture All right, so the last part of that, of course, in verse number 40, it says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So, in other words, in this passage of Scripture, there's actually a sequence found, and that sequence would be, first of all, that all that the Father gives are drawn, Secondly, all who are drawn come. Thirdly, all who come, Jesus receives. So in other words, this whole context where, where the Lord says, if you, anyone who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Well, anyone who comes to Christ and believes in him and receives him as who he is and what the Father has done through him he will turn no one down. He will turn no one down. And also, all who are drawn are raised up to eternal life. So from, from the day of conversion till the day that you pass out of this world, the whole plan of salvation is taken care of. This is not because you and I are inherently desirable. We are not desirable. We are ungodly. We are unholy. We are not desirable at all. It is because you and I are a gift from the Father to the Son. That is the main reason why anyone will be saved. Of course, then the John passage of Scripture, that all that he has given me tells that none of these will be lost. So all those given by the Father to the Son as a gift, will not only be saved, but none of them will ever be lost. So there's the security that comes in one salvation. And of course, I've already mentioned that Christ intercedes in particular for certain people from the John 17 passage, and that also that Christ intercedes or prays for the same people for whom he offered himself up as a sacrifice, where it tells us in Hebrews Chapter 7, verse 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And why does he do that? He did it when he offered himself up for this particular group of people. Now, that is those whom the Lord purpose to redeem include all 
who believe. Sorry about that. All right. So Christ's saving work is commonly spoken of in terms of all and world. Uh, people say, well, didn't, doesn't the Bible say Christ died for everyone or all people? And, of course, the passage of Scripture that does come, come to mind is in John chapter 16, probably a verse that I'll not look at this morning for the sake of time, but uh, we do know this, that verses that do use the word all, whole, or world are interpreted in a certain way. In other words, on the screen, does all mean all, all the time? See, we must not forget, while reading through the Scripture, that its language is sometimes figurative and hyperbolic. All right, Universal terms are used when we don't mean universal in fact. For example, if a husband or wife says to each other, you always leave the towel on the floor in the bathroom and never hang it up. Now, that may be true some of the time or even most of the time, but it is not true all of the time. Right, even though we may use all. So we use all when we really don't actually mean all. The, scripture, the scriptural point is that the reason these general terms are used in the Word of God was to actually to correct a false notion of salvation, that salvation was somehow just for the Jew alone, and it wasn't for the world of all men of all nations and every creature. All these are used to correct the mistaken notion that salvation was for the Jew alone. Christ died for the Jews and the Gentiles without distinction, but they are not intended to indicate that Christ died for all men without exception. He did not die for the purpose of saving each and every lost sinner. If he did, everyone would be saved. But everyone is not saved. Now, I want to look at some verses that actually show that that Scripture sometimes uses all world and whole in a very specific way. Could you see that? Uh, I'm I'm going to read it to you. Uh, I think next week I'm going to... I can widen the picture to include the whole screen there. I have to learn how to do that, though. All right. Luke chapter 2, verse number 1. Here's the passage. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, did they mean in that passage all the world of people? Or did it mean all the Roman world? It meant all the Roman world, all right? Also, another passage would be Luke 2.10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now, did it mean for every person or all ethnic groups? Well, it, it meant all ethnic groups, that all different kinds of people from all different places, that it would be good news. It's not good news. Christ is not good news for every pe- a person, Right? People reject Jesus all the time. It's not good for them. 
They want to avoid it. They don't want to even consider it. They think it's foolish. And then Colossians chapter 1 in verse 5 and 6, it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, just as it has come to all ethnic groups, it was not talking about just geography there. All the world, all the geographical world. No, all ethnic groups in the world. And then another passage of Scripture is John 12 and verse number 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, does it mean there every person in the world has gone after him or a lot of people have gone after him, all right? And, and specifically, a lot of people from different ethnic groups besides, in fact, Israel was not even coming to Christ. Very few were coming to Christ. They weren't coming to Christ nationally. They were coming to Christ individually. All right, now, I do want you to uh, consider this next passage of Scripture. What does, it, does, what does the world mean in one of the most famous passages of Scriptures in all the Bible? What does the world mean in John 3.16? Now, look what it says. John 3.16. All right? It says, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, let me set up the context for you. Jesus, in John chapter 3, is talking to Nicodemus, right? And who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Jewish teacher, right? He was a Jewish teacher. And of course, he was also a teacher of the law and of the prophets. Nicodemus was in a culture that was obsessed, obsessed with race and ethnicity. That is, salvation belonged in his mind, just to the physical descendants of Abraham, not to all the other nations, not to all the other ethnic groups of the world. So he was looking for a Messiah who would come, who would just be for the Jews, just be for the Jewish nation. It never dawned on Nicodemus or even the Jews, even if you read the Gospels, you'll see that it didn't even dawn on the Jews. It didn't dawn on the Jews that on their mind that the Messiah would pay for the sins of Romans and for Greeks and for Samaritans and for Gentiles. It didn't dawn on them. Why? Because they were defiled people. They needed to be thrown out and removed from God and destroyed and sent to hell. It was inconceivable to the Jew that a Gentile could be saved, could be forgiven of sin, and could be made right with God. See, that was in the mind of Nicodemus, to understand what this word world means in John 3.16. It doesn't mean that the Lord died for every single person who ever lived in the world. It doesn't mean that. It means that he died for certain people, 
people outside the nation of Israel and in the nation of Israel, both. Listen to what Pastor John Gill, old uh, Puritan, said uh, about this verse. He says, now, I quote, in opposition to such a notion, our Lord addresses this Jew, Nicodemus, and it is as if he said, you, Nicodemus, say that when Messiah comes, only the Israelites the particular favorite of God shall share in the blessing that came by and with the Messiah, and that the Gentiles shall reap no advantage by him at all, being hated by God and rejected of him. But I tell you, God so loved the Gentile as well as the Jew. So the Lord was driving out of the mind of Nicodemus this wrong notion that when the Messiah came, he would just come for the Jew in Israel. No, when the Messiah came, he was going to come for all ethnic groups. Aren't you glad about that? Because if you weren't glad about that, you couldn't, if, well, you couldn't be saved if this didn't happen, you understand? You couldn't be sitting here today knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior if this did not take place. Now, I hopefully, the next time you read John 3.16, you will consider in that particular passage of Scripture that uh, the world does not mean every single person. It does not mean every single person. So, in other words, we have to be conditioned to read the Word of God and look at the details of the text. Remember, the Holy Spirit of God used words to communicate to us. So, are there any particular passages of scripture that would seem to limit the atonement to less than every single person. Yes, there are several, and I listed them on the screen, and uh, I just want to see if the highlight comes up. All right, Isaiah 53, verse number 11, it says there, will justify the many, I'll just read the uh, part in yellow, as he will bear their iniquities. And then also Isaiah 53, 12. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. In Matthew chapter 20, verse number 20, it says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then Revelation 5 and verse number 9, which is a very good and pointed passage of Scripture about this particular subject. And it says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men, notice, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, he will pick men from tribes, tongues, people, nations, out of every one of those sections of humanity, not every single person. And then, of course, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He is paying off the ransom on behalf of the sheep. Now, I do like you to turn to another passage of Scripture in John chapter 10. In verse number 24, John 10, 24, in verse, verse 26, let me just read that 
follow along with me because, again, this passage of Scripture is saying something very important. In John 10, 24, it says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. And then in verse 26, he says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You see that there? See, that's looking at it that the reason why they didn't believe is because they were not the Lord's sheep in the first place. And that's why they did not believe. And so, looking in Scripture, there are several things that comes to mind on this. Number one, the sheep are those to whom he gives eternal life. Also, secondly, they are those for whom he lays down his life. Thirdly, they are not all because he tells those who were rejecting him they were not his sheep. And then, of course, the whole language used implies that the salvation of the sheep alone is the object for which he laid down his life. So Jesus did not lay down his life for the wolves and for the goats, just for the sheep. So then when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was substituting himself, paying the price for their sins, for a particular specific people. All those the Father had given him was on his heart. But also those who do not believe that would retort, oh, what about the passage that suggests that Christ died for all people? You know, you know what I mean. You, you know what I'm talking about because I had some of the same questions. But what about this passage? And what about that passage which seems to point that in some way Christ died for all people, like John 3.16, like 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, and chapter 6, verse 4 to 10, and 2 Peter Chapter one, two, 2, verse 1, and 1 Corinthians 15, 22. See, what about those passages? Well, I'm going to look at every one of those passages, but not today. Next week, I'm going to look at those passages. Right now, I was going to be considering the next, uh, the first passage, which is John three sixteen. but I am not going to do that right now. So uh, I'm going to go down and, and just relate to you a story, all right? Because there's one thing that remains in all that I say here this morning, and it's this. The one thing that remains clear is that the death of Christ actually accomplished the salvation of all those whom the Father had given him, and he would lose nobody. He would lose not one person. So if you today are a believer in Christ, if you today, this morning, are a believer in Christ, it is because he had your name on his heart as he offered himself in sacrifice to the Father. If you have not believed 
according to Scripture, you remain under the damning sin of unbelief. However, if you humble yourself and cry out for the mercy of God towards sinners as found in Jesus Christ, you can be like the tax collector. You can be declared righteous before the tribunal of God despite your sin. And you can rest assured that the death of Jesus has removed the wrath of God from you once and for all. So there needs to be a change. There needs to be a change that takes place in everyone. All right? And of course, that change, according to the Bible, we can never please God merely by the things that we think and do. We can't please him by merely believing orthodox truth about him. Also, we cannot please him. A passage of scripture there recorded is uh, pointing to that particular direction. And also, we can't please him by merely pulling up ourselves by our own bootstraps. We can't do that. See, for it says, for by the grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Their worship ended up being worship, but nothing but rote. Learned by rote, that's how they worshiped God, and God was not pleased with that. And then, of course, a, a next thing would be, what will the change involve when someone comes to Christ? Well, our inability to please him, please God by ourselves, means that the real change of Christian conversion must involve relying on Christ alone in repentance and, of course, in belief. Now, that means to turn, true repentance means that you turn away and turn to. You turn away from the many individual sins by which you have offended God's character and broken his law. You turn away from Secondly, from any attempt whatsoever to justify yourself before God by appealing to your own orthodox beliefs or acceptable behavior or what is called today moralism. There's a lot of moralism today, but it's not salvation. We turn to God also and look to him to pardon our sin, to give us right standing before God and to bring us into close fellowship with him. So true belief also would be include that, that it's not only repentance in Christ, but it's also belief in Christ. And of course, true repentance and true belief uh, means that we trust only in the person, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That also, when we think of that, we trust Jesus as God's appointed provision for the forgiveness of sins. We trust Jesus for moral power to effect real change 
in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our motives, in our desires, in our affections, in our words, in our actions, in the patterns of relating to God and to others in a godly and a holy way. Also, we trust Jesus to keep us in this saving belief until he takes all of us away to heaven where faith will become sight. No longer will we need faith. We'll see him. For the Bible does tell us that the sorrow according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, you may be in a place right now where you say, I'm a little confused. Right? I'm a little confused. Some say, don't need to do anything to be saved. God's job is to forgive. Christ died for all people without exception. So we all have been saved already, regardless of whether or not we ever make a decision to become Christ's disciples. Others say that our salvation is up to us. We simply need to make the decision to follow and obey Christ, which we have full power to do of our own free will. And then, of course, some, the Bible, not some, the Bible presents conversion as God giving us the desire to repent and believe. Biblical conversion does involve our repentance and belief. But it is God who's behind the the scenes working in our hearts to produce that repentance and belief in us. It says in Scripture, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Conversion must be God's work because we are unable to produce repentance and belief on our own. We cannot do that whatsoever. We can never do that on our own. So in preaching the gospel, the Bible tells us the preacher is really preaching to a bunch of lifeless corpses. Therefore, whether we stand in the pulpit or sit in the pews, We are dependent on God to produce this repentance and belief in someone else. We can't do it ourselves. We can't save people ourselves. We could never do it. Now, in saying all that, I would like to relate a story to you that actually happened to one of my family members in the past couple weeks. His name is Chris. He and his wife, Jenny, planned a vacation with some friends in which they were going to attend a country music festival, Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas. A group of eight attended the nightly concert together and booked rooms in the Mandalay Bay Hotel. One of Chris's friends, Georgina Copanzi, said It was really just a wonderful event until the very last hour, just before it was over, when the shooting happened. 
when the gunfire started, their group was split in two. Georgina's husband, Mark, and others stayed back on the lawn in the outdoor concert venue while Georgina joined her friend, Jenny and Chris, in standing uh, only in the standing only area to get a closer look at the show. Like many concert goers, we thought the rapid fire shooting was actually firecrackers. Georgina said, my friend Chris Bobby, who was standing next to me, fell to the ground. He had been shot. But he was alive. When it became clear what was happening, people panicked and ran anywhere and everywhere in order to find cover. Chris ended up across the street from the concert at the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino. His father texted me yesterday. His son is not a believer. And he said that his son told him that while he was running, having been shot, he was thinking in his mind that the second shot may be fatal. And the next thought that came into his mind was this. If I die, where will I go? Heaven or hell? Now, how is it that someone who has rejected the gospel many times would have that thought in their mind at that point? I would say that God, the Father, was drawing him, was showing him that the most important thing in life, that's already, you already know who Christ your creator is. It's already in your heart. The most important thing in life would be to answer the question, if I died today, where would I go? Heaven or hell? No purgatory, sorry. It's not in the Bible. Where would I go? And to ask a second question, if you were to die and stand before God, and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? If you tell him that you're a good person, if you tell him that you're moral, you don't kick the dog, you try not to hurt anybody, if you tell him that, that's good things. I'm glad you're doing that, but that's not going to get you into his presence. The only thing that is going to get you into his presence is to believe completely and totally in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you get there by repentance and faith in him alone, right? That's the only way. Now, just to pick the story up again, Chris did end up across the street at the Grand Hotel and Casino. There, he was safe and received some help. However, they realized that he was shot in the shoulder and needed more expertise, medical help. But by that time, the hospitals in the area were so overwhelmed, they could take no one else. And so the likelihood of Chris getting into an area hospital was very slim. Then someone stepped up. An anonymous donor paid for Chris to be flown back to his home in California in a medical helicopter. 
in order to have surgery on his shoulder and have the bullet removed. His wife was traumatized but unharmed. Chris's friend said, I never really thought I would ever be in a situation like this. No one ever does. The scariest part was not knowing where the shots were coming from and how many shooters there were, 59 dead and well over 500 wounded. That just happened not too long ago, right? And so you and I could probably say that share some kind of story in our life in which we knew God, the creator, who made us in his image, was speaking to us, was drawing us. And then, if it be that you came to Christ and believed in him as your Lord and Savior, after conversion, it became clear to you that the Lord was indeed speaking to you. And he brought into your life a happening, an event, a person to do one thing, to draw you to himself. That's what he does. See, so a sinner needs to be changed. A sinner needs to be changed. And of course, how does that great change happen? Well, first God calls people to himself, enabling them to hear and understand the gospel. All right, that's what he does. A second thing is that God graciously grants those he calls the free gifts of repentance and faith. Those gifts are given to us by God. And then what, what happens? This is what happens. We pray. We pray. So Chris Bobby, his father and mother being Christians, actually got saved out of our ministry here at Calvary. His son asked them, Dad, will you share with me the gospel? And so I believe that he trusted Christ, but I pray that it's, true conversion. I pray that it's conversion, not just after the event fades from his mind, he goes back to his old way, but he produces fruits of repentance. See, saying all that for this reason, God is at work. Conversion is a work of God. And He sovereignly grants life to our spiritual dead hearts and produces in us a willingness to repent of our sins and believe the gospel. If that did not happen, no one would get saved. You realize that. So everybody is heading to hell, and by God's mercy, electing mercy, God chooses from that group of people of all ethnic groups and all nations people to be saved because the father already gave those people to the son as a gift. Now the son had to die in the place of those people so their sins could be wiped away, right? And so the spirit of God can grant unto them faith and repentance and they come to believe in Jesus Christ, be saved eternally. So you see that if someone is saved like this, they cannot lose their salvation. They have it forever because it came from God, who is the source. God is the one who saves us, keeps us, causes us to persevere, and what? Takes us to glory, right? That's what happens. So that's part one of this, and I hopefully 
Next time this works better. I don't know why it didn't work so well. Let's pray. I blame myself, nobody else on that. Lord, this morning I do ask you that, I do ask you, Lord Jesus, that today that you would give us a greater understanding of this truth. This is not an easy truth, but it is a truth from Scripture. And this is exactly what you have done, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, as we consider these doctrines, that they would expand in our mind, that our understanding would become clear as we come across passages of Scripture that indicate that you died for your sheep, that you redeemed and cleansed them, that you propitiated the Father, that you made reconciliation for people who were your enemies, and that you justified them by dying in their place. And now you intercede for all those who come to know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, this would become clearer every day of our life. And as it does, Lord, I know it only does one specific thing. It causes us to worship you and praise you for who you are and what you've done because all honor does go to your name and only your name. And all glory goes to you we could take no credit for anyone's and our own salvation. So we bow before your mighty hand, and we pray that you would bless us. And thank you for the word of God. Strengthen us by it this morning. And if there's someone, Lord, who as of yet has not come to believe in you as their Lord and Savior, I pray you would have mercy on them. They would cry out for mercy, and like the publican, they would walk away justified because they believed alone in Christ Jesus to save them. And I pray this in your name. Amen.